0: Welcome to The Brief, with Nora Barrows-Friedman, Justin Poder, and me, John Elmer. On this episode, Canada's Saudi arms deal. Saudi's $14 billion weapons contract puts Canadian armoured vehicles on the front lines of the war in Yemen.
1: This was one of the rationales for selling them, the light armoured vehicles in the first place, was that they could be useful to the Saudi coalition in Yemen. I mean, we can't forget, like, since day one, that... Canada's chosen a side on, in this conflict, right? Like, they're on the side of the Saudi coalition very explicitly.
0: We are joined by Anthony Fenton to discuss the machinations of Canada's junior partner imperialism. How's it going, guys?
2: Oh, okay. How are you guys?
0: Hi, Justin. Hi, Nora.
2: Hi. How's social distancing going? Well,
3: what are we on, like, day 60? 60000
2: 6, You guys staying healthy?
3: yeah you know i think this has been a validation of the germ theory uh of disease because yeah i haven't gotten a cold i haven't
0: gotten anything it's amazing what yeah i don't have nightmares anymore (laughs) it's like get that ptsd out of the like there's no ptsd when the entire society is about to crumble you're just like i sleep like a baby (laughs) get up tomorrow and see what's happening
3: yeah there's no sense of dread i suppose it's already happened (laughs) Um okay, well, speaking of <laughs> dread um, we 've got a show on Canada and its arms industry, specifically focusing on the relationship with the what they call the Saudi kingdom i guess i don 't like that term very much, but uh let 's call it saudi arabia i don 't the whole idea that an entire peninsula is the personal possession of an individual family is odd, but this is the world we live in. What do you think, John?
0: Yeah, and we have lived in it for some time. And part of the research of our guest today, Anthony Fenton, is to show that the links between Saudi Arabia being effectively a fiefdom and the rise of them as an oil power after World War II is a significant dovetail for Canada. The Saudi arms deal is sort of talked about as if it's the first arms deal, but as we will discuss throughout this program, it is surely not. So should we just get started? Let's do it. The briefing. In 2014, Canada signed a $14 billion deal with Saudi Arabia to provide light armored vehicles. These look like tanks. They're wheeled, they're armored personnel carriers, troop carriers, and they're mounted with massive cannons. If anyone were to see one driving down the street, no one would call it, as Justin Trudeau did, a Jeep. It's clearly a tank. And it's an important tool for the Saudis in their desert fight particularly along their border with Yemen, which over the past five years of the war between the Saudis and the Houthis in Yemen, which has effectively turned into a civil war, at this point, the troop carriers have played a a leading role. Of course, it's an air war. It's defined as an air war. The troops on the ground are minimal, and the Saudis Saudis and Americans underwriting the Saudis and the UAE are carrying out literally hundreds of thousands of sorties over Yemen and have been for five years now. But the light armored vehicles are an important part of the war in that they move troops to the front. And so we have seen in a number of videos published by Houthi guerrillas and by Houthi news organizations, photographs of burning canadian light armored vehicles in yemen we've seen pictures of you know houthi rebels in desert sandals and ghillie suits climbing all over the trucks we've seen them drive off in the trucks and of course, it's not just light-armored vehicles, as Anthony will talk about later in the show. There's a number of components to this Saudi-Canadian arms deal. But just to put it in perspective, Saudi Arabia, a country with a population similar to Canada's, 30-odd million, is the world's largest purchaser of weapons. And the number one supplier is the United States. And In the past two years of this light-armored vehicle deal, Canada's number two. So Saudi's the number one importer in the world. And Canada is the number two supplier to Saudi Arabia. And just to give you a sense of what this scale of Saudi arms purchases in the last decade, this has really been the last decade that the Saudis have turned this up. They are in first place since 2010 to 2018. They are in first place in the world in arms procurement. And they are more than double the rate of China, which is number two and even more than double the rate of India, which is number three. So you have countries combining for three billion people spending on weapons, what Saudi Arabia, a country of 34-odd million, spends. So you get a real idea of what the purpose of arming a country to this degree is, because historically Saudis tended to play a more sideline role in the machinations of empire. But with the rise of King Salman and his son, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, there's been a new aggressive Saudi foreign policy, an aggressive foreign policy that's seen the war in Yemen start. They've seen a blockade on nearby Qatar, who was a GCC member, Gulf Cooperation Committee member. We've seen the Saudis like literally kidnap the prime minister of Lebanon, Saeed Hariri, and take him to Saudi to get him to make sure that he's on the same side in this discussion of of proxy war, really where he stands on Hezbollah and Iran. And then, of course, probably most spectacularly, we had the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, who was a journalist representing the Saudi royal court. He's not a dissident journalist, but if people remember the story, he was asked to come into the consulate in Istanbul to get some paperwork done, and he was never seen again. He was bone sawed, and his body was removed from the site, and Saudi intelligence and military agents left the building wearing Khashoggi's clothes. So all of these things happened right around the time, 2014, 2015, 2016, when the Saudi war on Yemen is really escalating. And you have Canada situating itself in a multi-billion dollar arms deal, of which there is no accountability transparency, it's not even understood at this time how many vehicles there are. The original deal, some access information requests numbered the deal at about a thousand light armored vehicles. But there's also pretty clearly, although we don't know for sure, a secondary portion of the contract, which is to retrofit, refurbish the older armored personnel carriers that Canada has bought from Saudi Arabia. Canada has been selling armored vehicles to Saudi Arabia since 1980. And so this was a push in part by the Saudis to sort of deepen the imperial links. And we're we're calling this episode Junior Partner because of Canada's role as a junior partner to the American empire. But Saudi Arabia plays a key role in the empire as well, too. And we will unfold more of that discussion as we go forward. Justin, do you want to give us like a little bit of a rundown on how we got to this point? I'd like to start 100 years ago, John.
3: Actually, 120. Because this Yemen has been a key linchpin of global history and of empire for at least that long. There's just a few touchstones as I was looking into this that I really wanted to note. So the British East India Company of infamy, shows up in Yemen around 1839. They wanted to take the port city of Aden as a refueling station for their um, Indian possession. The Ottoman Empire at that time had a lot of influence in the northern part of the peninsula, and the local Yemenis were pretty clever and sophisticated in those times in trying to play the imperial powers against each other. The French, British, Italian, German, and Swiss all showed up. And in some ways, their imperial efforts in the 1860s prefigured the scramble for Africa in the 1880s and 90s. It was in this period around the time of the scramble for Africa and the age of empires that the British essentially created the Saudi kingdom. They put one of the Saud... Saud brothers in power in 1902, the Ottomans were sponsoring the the other brother. Um, So just how history could have gone a little bit differently. But it was that use of the Wahhabi-influenced Saudi Islam that was sponsored from that period. So from the early 1900s on, and the British were pretty explicit about using that type of religious ideology against Ottoman influence. In 1918, the British blockaded the coast and occupied the port of Hodeida, which... Actually, the Americans and British are are blockading now. The blockade against Yemen is not a Saudi blockade. It's not possible. Saudis can't do that. It's the U.S. and the U.K. that are doing this. Most of the military things that are claimed by the Saudis can only be done with U.S. and U.K. weapons and pilots and advisors and technology. Yemen uh, achieved independence from Britain, I believe it was in 1970? It was in the 1960s. North Yemen was a kingdom for a while, and then it became a republic. South Yemen was actually a socialist government, a socialist republic for a long time. They were unified in 1990 under the North Yemen's president. He became president of all of Yemen. That was Saleh. And Saleh is a player from... 1978 when he's the leader of North Yemen to becoming the leader of all of Yemen in 1990 until his rather summary execution I suppose in 2017 when well we'll we'll get back to that. So Saleh becomes president in 1990 and that's when Yemen actually casts a vote in the UN against Gulf War 1, against the US war in Iraq. And I don't know if people remember, but the Yemeni delegate was famously told by the American ambassador to the UN or whatever agent that that was the most expensive vote you ever cast. So the US proceeded to deny Yemen financial consideration at the IMF and various other kinds of punishments for that bit of defiance and foreign policy independence that they showed in 1990. From the 90s, Saleh learned a lesson from that, I guess you could say, and tried not to defy the empire too much over the next decade and a half. This was in the period that there were all kinds of neoliberal development schemes across the Gulf, like Dubai, Doha, Abu Dhabi, they were all becoming mega cities and playgrounds at this time. And Yemen was slated for this kind of treatment as well. There were lots of designs on Yemen's resources, lots of designs on Yemen's land and the economy of Yemen. The so-called Houthis resisted this, and they also very much opposed. They felt very strongly about the Israeli occupation of Palestine, also about the occupation of the cities of Mecca and Medina by the U.S., the U.S. bases in Saudi Arabia— as well as the occupation of Afghanistan, as well as the war in Iraq in 2003. So it's not just foreign policy. There were local neoliberal and economic grievances as well. But one of the big focuses of this was the people in the north who had a kind of uprising around 2004. Saleh sent in the army to try to pacify them. There were six or seven waves of war over the next several years when Saleh would repeatedly send... The military to no avail. You you know, these, this was not something that, that could easily be crushed or defeated. In 2011, there was a kind of a brokered deal during the Arab Spring to get Saleh out, uh, replace him with the vice president, al-Hadi. But not only did Hadi not change anything in terms of the orientation of the Yemeni government towards neoliberal governance, the takeover of the country's resources. All of those processes were deepened, but so too was, you know, there was nothing nothing done in terms of uh, the relationship to imperialism or the US adventures in the peninsula. So when none of the problems were resolved, the Houthis uh, came back, they made an alliance with Saleh, the ousted president, and they showed up uh, in the capital and pretty much took over in 2014. At that point, I think 2014 was like a key moment when a new, I think the expectation was that this was a demonstration of a new balance of forces, that uh, Ansar Allah, which is what the Houthis call themselves, so we should probably use that term as well, but that Ansar Allah was forced to be reckoned with on the national level, and that some kind of dispensation would have to include them. And at that point is when the Saudis escalated their role in the war, and they've just been steadily escalating the war and the atrocities against Yemenis and against all Yemenis since then. So what started as various factions and groups with some legitimacy, and some following, vying for power, which is something that happens in many, many countries. It doesn't have to end up in a genocidal uh, blockade and bombing and starvation, but the Saudis have turned it into that since uh, 2015. I know we want to talk about the humanitarian impacts, as, as well as what MBS, as he's called, has been trying to do, and what he has achieved, I suppose, militarily since 2015.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's achieved militarily almost nothing. And that is what (laughs) is a remarkable aspect of this conflict is that the war gets worse week on week. And they don't even have this kind of thing that we're used to in North America where they have a massive propaganda surge around like supporting the troops. Although they did have that. If you guys remember the first day in the war, one of the princes, I forget which one, but he offered to buy Bentleys for all of the pilots that flew in the bombing raids. Within the next two days after the beginning of the bombing, the top commander in the Saudi armed forces said that the war was over, that they'd knocked out the Houthis' defensive capabilities. Just these kind of idiotic statements that seem to uh, launch every war. If you guys remember when the Israelis bombed Lebanon in 2006, they said they had knocked out all of Hezbollah's rockets within the first day, and then the war went on days longer. And that's the case here in Yemen, except the case has gone on now for five. Years, and the balances of power, like the the times, you don't have examples of like Houthi drawbacks. Like you don't have even just taking the silly risk board way of looking at international adventurist <laughs> invasions. They're not rolling back area and turning it red or turning it black or they're not like buffering no, it's, zones. It's and the having opposite. Str- they're j- it's the opposite. The Yemenis are moving literally into Saudi Arabia. Yeah. They're sacking their border points.
3: I should say one thing about that. The areas that the Yemenis are moving into are disputed territories historically. So some of these areas, Najran, the Asir, and there's one other. There's three of these territories that were given to Saudi Arabia by an imperial broker deal in 1934. And it was like supposed to be, you know, 20 years and we will revisit it because they knew neither side like Imam Yahya and and the Saudis couldn't outright take it.
2: That so sounds familiar. Ter- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the
3: Yemenis are the Yemenis are uh, you know, in their in their view they're basically Saudi
0: occupied territories anyway. Okay. Wow. Well. Yeah. So the footage from that is I'm just going to say as a like a tracker of guerrilla media is the finest in the world. The way that the Houthis track these attacks, the way that you watch the soldiers run from the bases running across the desert back to Saudi Arabia, like they're they're very uh, potent agitprop. (laughs) It's the information war is very, very stark in this conflict. So the standoff has taken a bit of a I mean, it was considered a military. Military standoff in the terms of like nobody was moving in either direction. Of course, the Houthis were running the country, so they're definitely entrenched and not haven't been felled at all by this war. But in the last couple of years, things have really escalated. The Houthis have carried out significant ballistic missile attacks on Saudi territory. There was a drone operation on the Abu Dhabi International Airport. The United Arab Emirates is a key. Player in this. I mean, we could do five episodes on Yemen just to get you up to speed, but Abu Dhabi, UAE plays a crucial role in the war in Yemen.
3: UAE has kind of moved in with a slightly more effective mercenary force and occupied several of the strategic sites in the south where the Houthis don't have a lot of natural entrenched force.
0: Right. And they're also negotiating. There was Houthi planes flew to Abu Dhabi in 2019. And then now there's been a a thaw in the relations. Abu Dhabi pulled its troops. They pulled their allies, the Sudanese troops out of it and effectively left have left at this point, the Saudis alone in their coalition. And the reason why they did that was because of Ansar Allah resistance. It's what I'm going to I want to underline here is that after the drone attack on the Abu Dhabi airport, The UAE kind of went, you know, then there was this, there was these shipping wars where these bombs were being put on shipping tankers passing through that created a real problem for everybody shipping through that massive international oil shipping lane. In June and August of 2019, the Houthis downed two US MQ-9 Reaper drones. And recently, February 14th, they downed a Saudi tornado warplane and its two pilots were taken in al Juf. Governorate. So, this is a strategic shift for the Houthis that has had significant impact on how the Saudis are prosecuting this war, namely that they're looking for a way out. I just wanted to jump in with two other points. One is the Saudis have two
3: growing strategic scale problems, maybe three. One is long term low oil prices, and this war is financially expensive and actually moving towards bankrupting them. Two, They don't have the kind of demographic depth to continually call up more soldiers. They've been trying to get other countries to fight for them with money, but even with money like they were trying to get Pakistan to send soldiers and Pakistan turned them down and it's like when do you mm. ever hear of Pakistan turning the saudis down but they <laughs> turned them down and then the other thing is like the other thing we we don't realize like we think of saudi we think of the arabian peninsula as like big saudi and small yemen big saudi picking on small yemen it's a big desert and in fact yemen and saudi could nobody knows for sure what the populations are but they could have a like similar populations in terms of like how big their actual populations are like Yemen is relatively big power and a big player on the peninsula and it's been proven that way so like getting to the point where it could end up with Saudi no longer existing by the end of all this this you know the the whole system of Saudi control of the peninsula could is is kind of coming unglued On account of this horrible. Yeah, because
0: the Yemeni government that the Saudis are carrying out this war to back is based in Riyadh, right? It's like they're they're like literally a government in exile. It's a pretty stark situation. And that after five years of imperial war, the imperial powers are in a worse situation than they were when they got in is uh, I mean, it's a tribute to the Houthis and to the resistance in Yemen. But it's also a a statement of the profound incompetence of these imperial projects that we cover over and over and over again that are just defeat after defeat. And they're really good at committing atrocities
3: and not so good at achieving any strategic objectives.
2: Right. There's a lot of suffering in its wake. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. So Nora, why don't you talk just a little bit about that? Because we'd be remiss to do an episode on Yemen and not yeah. talk about like the, the heroic resistance is defeating the imperialist invading army. But the cost is high.
2: It's it's huge. I mean, we're we're looking at a situation much like Kashmir, which we discussed a few episodes back in terms of how the humanitarian toll has been suppressed or obscured for the most part. According to the United Nations, it is the largest humanitarian crisis in the world, and that's quite a chilling designation. Eighty percent of the people there in Yemen are in need of humanitarian aid and protection. More than 14 million people are in acute need, and the UN says that more than 3 million have been displaced from their homes since 2015. More than 600,000 people have lost their jobs. 58% of the population is living in extreme poverty. If we look at the World Health Organization, they have said that 1.3 million suspected cases of cholera have been reported since late 2016, so almost four years now, when the world's largest cholera epidemic swept Yemen. In a 2018 annual report, the WHO said that 50% of deaths caused by communicable diseases, maternal, perinatal, and nutritional conditions could have been avoided. They said that half of all the health facilities around the country were deemed fully functioning, and nearly 300 clinics were partially damaged, with more than 70 fully damaged by airstrikes. An estimated 60% of the population in Yemen has been deemed food insecure. UNICEF, the UN Agency for Children, reported three years ago that nearly 2.2 million Yemeni children were acutely malnourished, and an estimated 500,000 suffer from severe acute malnutrition. That was almost a threefold rise over 2014 levels, so before the, the air campaign started. And UNICEF said that even if these children survive, they risk not fulfilling their developmental potentials, posing a serious threat to an entire generation in Yemen and keeping the country mired in the vicious cycle of poverty and underdevelopment. Fast forward to just last month in April 2020, and UNICEF reported that over 5 million children now under the age of five in Yemen are facing a heightened threat of cholera and acute watery diarrhea, which is a a disease that the country continues to experience. And this is in part due to increased heavy rains since mid-April. And, you know, and so we're getting like the effects of climate crisis underpinning this humanitarian disaster, as many wars and occupations do. UNICEF adds that more than 110,000 cases of suspected cholera have been recorded across Two hundred and ninety of Yemen's three hundred and thirty one districts since January 2020 children under the age of five account for a quarter of these cases. So the nightmarish cholera epidemic continues apace in Yemen. And Justin, you pointed out a significant marker here in terms of the media suppression. Uh, back in 2018, Mark Ames of Warnered Radio noted that the death toll hadn't been updated by corporate media for two years, even as 10,000 cholera cases per week were being reported. The WHO now, uh, of course, is trying to figure out how to contain the COVID 19 pandemic as Yemen's healthcare system remains shredded and on the edge. So, It's a chilling snapshot of what this Saudi-led, U.S.-backed war has done to the people in Yemen, as well as the climate crisis, as well as these um, revolving doors of crises are meted out.
3: And it's also a case study in the suppression of information and how when it's not serviceable, right? Right. When it's not useful to anybody, they right. just stopped counting. And this is the right. UN. So it's like right. the, these institutions that people think are there to keep track and just make the neutral call, Human Rights Watch or Amnesty or the United Nations, they're not lifting even a finger to right. do the minimum of just counting the dead. They just stopped counting at 10,000. Yeah. So yeah. according to the UN, nobody after 10,000 people died in Yemen, nobody else died. All these airstrikes happened, all these blockades have continued, and nobody died. Just nobody died. 10,000 was the cap. It's amazing. Stop counting.
0: Well, our guest on the show today, Anthony Fenton, talks a lot about the way that the government, through the media, through the corporations, sort of reinforce this narrative that you just described maybe it's worth just giving anthony a little introduction anthony's been a friend of our show for before it was a show i know back in the back in the day i know anthony and justin traveled in haiti together doing some uh, on the ground work
3: yeah during the occupation of haiti by the un actually there's the un
0: again And I've done a bunch of work with Anthony on counterinsurgency. The history with our man Anthony goes back a long way, and he's been doing this work for a long time in the trenches, nuts and bolts, stuff on foreign policy. So why don't we give that interview a rip?
2: You're listening to The Brief with John, Justin, and me, Nora. Follow us on Twitter at The Brief Pod. And now back to The Brief.
0: We're joined on the line by Anthony Fenton. Anthony's a researcher in the political economy of Canada-Saudi Arabia links since World War II, completing a PhD at York University in Toronto. Thanks a lot for joining us, Anthony. Thanks for having me, John. So let's just get right into this. And uh, why don't you just describe off the top the nature of the Saudi-Canada arms deal that was signed? Give us the contours of that deal.
1: It was signed in February 2014. But really, go back, go back to 2012, we got some emails that show that uh, the negotiations for this latest deal begun in 2009, I think. It took a number of years, under the primarily under the Harper era, which is, in hindsight, it would probably explain why there was a frenzy of of high-level visits to Saudi Arabia by people like Foreign Affairs Minister John Baird at the time, who became the first and only Canadian foreign minister to visit all of the... All of the countries of the Gulf Cooperation Council including Saudi Arabia it, during his tenure but basically it was just it's just a continuation of of a series of arms deals deals for armored vehicles light armored vehicles produced by General Dynamics Land Systems Canadian branch plant in London Ontario there've been several of these contracts negotiations i going back to the, uh, the earliest i've seen a uh, reference to This program at the time it was called the AVGP program before it was called the Lav program. Going back to the late 1970s, the first export permits were approved in the in uh, 1980, not long after Pierre Trudeau had uh, done his historic visit to Saudi Arabia. And basically, you know, this company has been churning out these, you know, several thousand of these armored vehicles by now, primarily for the Saudi Arabian National Guard for several decades now. And that's the deal signed in 2014. Wasn't even immediately controversial at the time. You look back at the media coverage; I think it was Ricochet wrote the first critical piece at the time, Derek O'Keefe. But there was a bit of a lag there before you finally saw so a bit of an uproar. Probably around the time that Saudi Arabia led the invasion of Yemen in early 2015. Right, so it was like nobody really had a problem with Saudi Arabia. Until that happened, of course, that happened almost immediately immediately on the heels of the ascension of King Salman, and his, of course, his now notorious son, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman. And so it's kind of like that cocktail of the succession process in Saudi Arabia, combined with this invasion of Yemen, the Yemeni civil war, that gave rise to a lot of the controversy surrounding this deal, whereas in decades past, there's been an ebb and a flow of opposition to our arms sales to Saudi Arabia, but nothing like we've seen sustained six years since the deal was signed, but five years now we've dubiously passed, recently passed the anniversary of the war in Yemen. And essentially the Canadian Commercial Corporation, an arm of the Canadian state, acts as a broker between the Saudi Arabian state and the general dynamics and basically collects, in theory, collects the checks from Saudi Arabia for the armored vehicles and then passes the money on to General Dynamics. I mention that because in recent months we've seen that the Saudi Arabia has been uh, in some serious arrears. So General Dynamics has basically since early 2017 started delivering the labs by ship. Saudi Arabia sends their cargo ships to, initially, to New Brunswick, Port St. John, or various ports around the world, picks up their weapons, brings them home. It's quite a system they have logistically. But since 2017, almost you know, month by month, they've been delivering the the labs off the line to Saudi Arabia or to Belgium, where there's an extensive training program. That's because uh, these are totally new labs, new and different, new and improved. You know, labs 6.0, whatever the the version is this time. Uh, basically, we've seen pockets of opposition around the world at the ports where these these labs have been paying visits. Whether it's in Canada, where there was a one-off protest in New Brunswick late in 2018, or in uh, Europe especially, where workers have gone to the, the lengths of even shutting down ports and refusing to load weapons that are believed to be carrying these very these very labs and other armaments destined for Saudi Arabia and potentially destined for Yemen. We haven't seen any of these labs appear in Yemen, although we've seen oodles of the older model labs appear in the conflict. And the Canadian government uses this as a sort of a defensive deflecting, uh, deflection to say that, look. There's nothing wrong with us continuing to ship labs to Saudi Arabia while this war rages in Yemen, because we have found no credible evidence that any of these these labs have appeared in Yemen. But it seems like the, at least a couple billion dollars worth of the initial contract that was signed in 2014 were earmarked for upgrades of the older model labs. And this is something that doesn't get mentioned. It was, it was revealed in the 2016 memo signed by uh, Stefan Dion, which was one of the events that kicked up a lot of the, the opposition at the time in 2016 because they had relied for many months on, well, this is a contract signed by the conservative government, we're a liberal government, uh, we're bound by contracts, who are we if we don't live up to our contracts? But then there was this moment in, in 2016 when the, the liberals basically had to own the arms deal because they're the ones who signed off on the export permits for them, eventually giving the green light. And so,
0: and at first, they tried to cover that up, right? I mean, Trudeau's sort of famous line was that they were just jeeps, right? So maybe, yeah. why don't you just describe a little bit what these light armored vehicles are, and what the why the war in Yemen would have brought them to the forefront?
1: The Canadian manufacturers of armed vehicles do sell sort of jeep and truck-like vehicles, and that's, of course, another story. But of course, these these labs, light armored vehicles. The only real thing that distinguishes them from tanks, you might beg to differ on this, is their wheels aren't on a track like a tank would be, right? But they're they're armored similarly. They're more, perhaps more so, they're more like troop carrying vehicles. But they have these large cannons on them that are produced in Belgium, and that's another side of the equation that's quite interesting because Belgium has had a much more serious opposition to arms sales to Saudi Arabia, and, that, and then the Canadian labs are bound up in that in their discussions. Because a big part of their their weapons exports are those cannons, they're shipped to Canada, that are then installed on the labs and then shipped back to Saudi Arabia as the ultimate end user. But yeah, basically they're 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 a tactical vehicle of choice, especially in the border regions. So you could split hairs over you know whether they've actually like used them in Yemen. There's lots of footage of them being engaged in battles with Yemeni rebels. Now, so a lot of those battles, it's, it's difficult at times to pinpoint are the result of Yemenis making incursions inside of Saudi Arabia. And technically they're defending Saudi Arabia, right? The National Guard's doing its job in that that sense. But there's also been uh, reports from some Arab journalists in the the region who have shown footage of Yemenis operating these (laughs) Canadian-made armored vehicles that have presumably somehow been given to them. These are older model, older model labs, again, by the Saudis. Of course... A lot of them have been seized and destroyed in in the war. But but basically, yeah, they're a good defensive tool, but also an offensive one. There's a good amount of footage that I've collected over the years that show with the caption in Arabic, you know, target practice, hunting Houthis, and then showing the labs firing cannons off into the distance. You don't know if they're actually who they're targeting and whatnot, but... Yeah, that's basically what the the purpose they've served. And then these new ones, who knows? They're new and improved and more deadlier. And, you know, it's hard to say what kind of a strategic or tactical role they may play in the future.
0: So we've seen lots of footage of, relatively lots of footage, of like burning armored vehicles. And as you said, it's not clear always whether it's which side of the border it's on, but we've seen footage of burning armored vehicles are these not the canadian are these the older ones are these like are canadian weapons actually being sacked and repurposed by houthi guerrillas
1: oh yeah i mean as far as repurposed it's it's seldom that you'll see like a houthi rebel driving off in a (laughs) canadian made
0: but we did see that the other day with the houthis driving i believe it was an american one right an mrap
1: yeah, the, the NAMAP, No, but there's also the Canadian company that's probably provided more armored vehicles to Saudi Arabia and their, you know, their proxy uh, fighters, be they Sudanese, be they Yemeni, than the Street Group, which is, a, you know, it's owned by a Russian Canadian gentleman who basically lives in the United Arab Emirates now, and that's where his production facility is. They boast that it's the largest private armored vehicle manufacturing facility in the world. That's in one of these free trade zones in um, Ras Al Khaimah, UAE. And uh, hundreds and hundreds of these vehicles have appeared in the conflict, like, clearly in Yemen, clearly, like, all over the place. So many different models of them. But, yeah, that, those ones are the ones, strike group armor vehicles, that you see, like, being destroyed on, you know, by the dozens. Like, I think the, the, the website Lost Armor, they track the armored vehicles, in particular, that are destroyed, seized, or otherwise seen in, on the battlefield. And, like, there's literally well over 100 strike group vehicles that have been accounted for just through this website alone in the last five years. But as far as like the, the labs go, it's yeah, this the older model labs that we've seen. We calculated this when Martin Lukash was uh, writing his piece for um, the National Observer on Canadian weapons in Yemen. We calculated it probably as good as a 90% chance that if you see a lab, it was made in Canada. Because there was a brief period where there were a few under the previous Swiss-owned company, Moag, that worm that may have been produced in Switzerland back in like the late 80s, early 1990s. But yeah, for the most part, if you see a lav, it was made in Canada.
0: So you've been doing a lot of your research, as you were saying, you've been tracking essentially open source footage of the use of these weapons. Why don't you talk a little bit about the way that you've researched and how you find this material and why it's at odds with what the government is saying that these weapons are being used for.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a lot easier to do it. Like, there is, for example, a Twitter feed that was devoted to this question in Yemen in particular, by uh, the account was called Yemeni Observer. And then earlier, it was last year, early 2019, all of a sudden, Twitter arbitrarily suspended the account. Didn't delete it, but like, it's still there it'll just say this account is like, basically permanently suspended. And uh, that account would provide day-to-day you know, updates. So they're really in tune with the, you know, they probably got suspended because they're believed to be, you know, pro-Houthi uh, account. But they had collect all this footage, and it would be really easy to, and they would identify the vehicles was like really superb at, like, pinpointing particular vehicles, guns, whatever the, the arm is uh, in the conflict. So I've had to get a little better myself at like finding the original sources, be it through you know Instagram, YouTube. They're very good. Like that's the thing with the rebel movements <laughs> in the 21st century is uh, they tend to be pretty adept at uh, using these uh, GoPro cameras or just you know handheld devices with high definition cameras uh, and uploading them consistently to social media. Now, of course, there's credibility gaps you gotta you gotta account for geolocation tools that i'm not familiar with you know that other open source researchers with a lot you know more experience and funding are able to do but i think at this point to your latter question clear that uh, you know what they hinge a lot of their arguments on like our inability to credibly establish that canadian whatever weapons are uh, have been have been seen inside Yemen or that they're being used to fight the war in Yemen. The memo I mentioned a few minutes ago, the 2016 memo, this was one of the rationales for selling them the light-armored vehicles in the first place, was that they could be useful to the Saudi coalition in Yemen. I mean, we can't forget, like, since day one, that Canada's chosen a side on, in this conflict, right? Like, they're on the side of the Saudi coalition very explicitly. But where they've run up against the unfortunate uh, context of people being opposed to this. And so they're like, oh, wait, wait, wait. We may be able to support them. We don't want to draw attention too much attention to that. Basically, their yardstick is, unless you can prove to us that a light armored vehicle or a Canadian sniper rifle or whatever has been used to target a civilian, then you know, just try again. Like, <laughs> no, don't talk to us unless you can you can demonstrate that without a shadow of a doubt. Like, so it's it's pretty funny. I mean, we saw that in particular with these other Canadian armored vehicles that appeared in the eastern province in this operation in the summer of 2017 when they were, like, repressing...
0: Uh, right, domestic dissent, right? Like, that was the part yeah. that they, they made this whole justification, like, oh, we can't use it in Yemen, and then the next thing you know, it's, like, putting down an indigenous, you know, whatever, social movement in the South.
1: Yeah, and then, like, so they did this whole investigation. They They temporarily suspended the export permits of the company, but then they came to this conclusion, right? We have no proof after we've spoken at length with our Saudi counterparts and, you know, our other friends in Saudi Arabia we've established that we can't determine that these were used to in any human rights violations but like as though that's the criteria right that you should be using whereas like project plowshare is constantly um, saying like it's not that's not the criteria the criteria should be that if it's even possible that these could be used in that way that we shouldn't be sending them in the first place, but they just completely ignore that kind of r- rationale.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting dynamic, right? Because it's essentially that the fact that the Saudis are losing the war is the reason why this is a debate in Canada, because originally, like you said, the the internal memos about the war were supporting the war, saying that these would help with instability in Yemen or whatnot. And then everybody in the Saudi, U.S., Canadian coalition thought the war against the Houthis was going to be short, right? There was going to be a quick in and out thing. And then it turns out that, you know, six years later, they're still losing the war. I mean, they're losing it much more dramatically today than they were even a year ago or two years ago. And that really puts the focus. uh, So the Houthis have have actually through (laughs) Saudi losing this war has put on the agenda, the linkages between Saudi and Canada and these arms deals writ large, right? Absolutely, and
1: of course, all the while in the last year and a half, you've had this diplomatic dispute, right? Where basically you've had a sort, you know, semi-freezing of relations between Canada and Saudi Arabia that has complicated matters and certainly enraged certain sectors of the Canadian capitalist class.
0: Right, because essentially it was the Saudis that broke the relationship off, right? Am I understanding that correct? Like it was like Christian Friedland gave some sort of like tepid statement about human rights and the Saudis freaked out and essentially it was a Saudi-led breakdown in the relationship,
1: right? Basically, yeah. I mean, it wasn't even Freeland. I mean, Freeland just basically... Tweeted in English what the Canadian embassy in Saudi Arabia had tweeted in Arabic, which is supposedly what raised the ire of the Saudis initially was that it was in Arabic that, that they dare demand that they release these particular human rights, uh right Ra- 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 Badawi's sister and others uh, who are in prison and, and then it was when you know Christian Freeland couldn't stand down and go, okay, we'll delete the tweet sorry i didn't I didn't mean to do that like she had to she had to stand her ground, and yet at the same time, <laughs>
0: she wished she could back down. <laughs> yes,
1: yes, and you know that's clear and clear enough. I think in the access to information documents I've gotten since then that show that, like, at every opportunity, Canadian officials, high level, mid level functionaries, whoever has the opportunity, is trying to just plead, basically plead with Saudi. Officials to be like, just, just, we just want to normalize relationships. Can we just get past this? But really, I think the main indicator is like, it's not whether oil continues to be shipped to Canada from Saudi Arabia or weapons continue to be shipped to, uh, to Saudi Arabia from Canada. It's whether wheat continues to shift. Because, you know, every, you see the press releases for Saudi Arabian uh, wheat purchases, and it's always like, you still see them in brackets, it's excluding Canada, right? They've excluded Canada from the wheat purchases, which is a big hit for the Canadian uh, farmers. At the same time, Saudi Arabia owns what the the organization formerly known as the Canadian Wheat Board. Right? I mean, they didn't divest. There is one of these like is a selective, basically a selective freezing of uh, of the relationships. So they kept the wheat board, kept the weapons flows. They've signed new contracts with a whole list of various Canadian companies, like uh, when it's served or suited their purposes, right? And uh, but they rankled uh, a number of longer-lasting relationships here and there as well along the way. But yeah, it's a real selective. Uh, and then with, uh, with the G20 being hosted by Saudi Arabia this year, like, and then, of course, you had this recent, getting back to the light-armored vehicle uh, sale, this recent renegotiation that went on under the radar, led by Finance Minister Bill Morneau. He went to Saudi Arabia, he was the first Canadian official to go there since the diplomatic dispute, for a G20 meeting late last year. I assume that that's when they would have hammered out the details of of whatever this renegotiation. The funny thing was a few weeks ago when the when the press release came out by Jean-Francois Champagne was, oh, we've got this new, more transparently renegotiated contract. Unfortunately, we can't tell you anything about it, but we trust that. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's way more it's better. good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, and and he said he was going to release the report, the new you know report on uh, the review of arms sales that coincided with this, where, wherein they declared that we now are prepared to start resuming the issuance of new export permits for weapons as of now, sort of bearing the lead, right? Look, we got this new contract for the labs. It's new and more transparent, even though we can't tell you about it. Oh, and by the way, we're going to start shipping in other weapons to Saudi Arabia again. But that might be an indication of an overall thawing. But like I said, it's not until we see the students coming back and the wheat sales flowing that we'll know that uh, they've truly normalized uh, relations again. The review has passed
0: and there's those sales have resumed and there's been a billion and a half dollars defense news story just the other day, right? A billion and a half dollars has moved since the renegotiation or whatever it was. That...
1: Well, David Piglazi's, he I don't know, man, his reporting has been really, really questionable on this for a while. So, and I certainly don't want to pin the headline writing on him though. But yeah, there was 500 million payment made by Saudi Arabia before the renegotiation. And then apparently since the renegotiation, which happened at the end of March, there's been another $500 million payment by the Saudis to the Canadian Commercial Corporation. So to basically uh, eat into those, I think it was almost $3 billion worth of arrears. So basically they delivered $3 billion worth of these labs without receiving any payment, but now they've they've paid a billion or a billion and a half in total in the last several months.
0: So speaking of the journalists then, one of the things that you've done with your research is to um, to attempt to feed the media... Um, these kind of nuggets of research that you're doing um, with the hopes of presumably (laughs) influencing the national discussion on these arms deals. Maybe just talk a little bit about the success or failure of that uh, sort of side project.
1: Yeah, it's been a lot more failure than success. I mean, it's been an exercise and it's very, very, very eye opening, right? Just to see a bit of a rapport relationship, if you will, like dialogue, whatever, with a number of different reporters who are covering the beat, right? I mean, for the longest time, it was literally like a reporter named Stephen Chase at the Globe and Mail, right? Then the diplomatic dispute happened, and all of a sudden, everybody, for a brief period, there, everybody's reporting on Canada and Saudi Arabia. But as far as like the arms deal goes, a very select few, very like Brewster and Chase and a couple others here and there, but nobody, I mean, literally nobody, even Chase or booster are, are really literally doing like any solid investigative work.
0: So tell us a bit, like what do they, when you send them a nugget, like here's a burning lav in, on the border, like what is their response? Like are they up against editorial pressure or what what do you sense from your from your report?
1: There's an editorial pressure, I'm sure, generally like overarching. I don't know if I can, I can point to any particular example. Let's take the example of summer of 2017, which is probably like the closest you could say would come to have fed information that then... Helped, you know, at least you know, like you say, like initiate some sort of dialogue in the media. So, like, because I, I identified these Ontario made Teradine armored vehicles. In fact, I had worked closely with Steve Chase on a previous article in 2016 when we first, uh, Jeremy Binney, I believe it was, of uh, Jane's Defense, had identified a terodine vehicle in Yemen that was disabled by the Houthis. They're like, oh, wow. Well. And uh, so I started digging into it and realizing, oh, this is Ontario. This is formerly owned by Magna International. This is, a big, this is, this is interesting. There's got to be more to this. And then you discover that dozens of these vehicles had been sold to the Saudi Arabian Ministry of Interior. And then here we are, fast forwarding to 2017. And they're, they're appearing in this, in Awamiya province, in this this major operation to cleanse the neighborhood. So I sent Chase some of the photos that were cropping up on the social media and then he's like okay can you put together a package like just can you send me like the six best footages you have or whatever the six best flaming the, labs yeah yeah and then i did so and i so i emailed them to him and then he reports on them and uh, what what was interesting though and in, in this that shows this particular example is that later access to information requests showed that he came, chase copy and pasted my email cropping out my name right and all that forwarded it to the government and then ask them for comment, right, and then in turn this <laughs> sets off a torrent of you know panic, and you know that's what set off the investigation, the suspension of the permits uh temporarily and then but then the whole like all the b s that followed that right the resumption of the permit, the covering up the uh, the the brushing under the under the rug of the allegations, et cetera. The dynamic is interesting you know I'll get contacted randomly like it's not even a matter of me going to a journalist, so it's like Journalists will come to me because they've heard, oh, he he studies this, right? He's one of like one of three people in the world who he looks at <laughs> <it> like, <laughs> and so we may as well contact him, right? And so you know, from CBC to the Toronto Star, various news outlets, and I'll talk a lot. I, I uh, will talk a lot about this strike group, which I mentioned earlier, this other Canadian company, because to this day, nobody has reported on these Canadian vehicles that are you know dotting the Yemeni conflict landscape. And I've talked at length to reporters at the Globe and Mail. Even the CBC, uh, as it happens, I was on, you know, they do these pre-interviews, right? So, like, lay out your case. You know, let me know why you think this is a good topic. And they're like, this was the last time I'll ever do this. Yeah. Well, I probably said that five times. But the producer's like, oh, wow, it's fascinating. That's so interesting. You know, tell me more. And then (laughs) I get an email. And then at the end, she's like, I think we could, I could picture, like, we could do a photo essay with your voiceover and da, da, da. And then. I get an email back half an hour later. Okay, we We're going in another direction. They end up having on the show some like pro weapons, pro Saudi uh, interlocutor. You know, it's like that's the standard. You know, it's like I end up getting a lot of demands in the, con- in the immediate context of like when they're uh, asking me for information to send them. Hassan Minaj, the, the comedian, you know, the other guy who's at HBO show. They contact me for. You know, they're all too willing to take your time and take your information and then do nothing with it. And that's uh, that's probably the most frustrating thing about it, but there have been examples where you know small victories here and there. But it's uh, it's more or less a tankless task. It's
0: funny you you mentioned that Minaj show because uh, Trudeau had a hard time on that episode, if, if I remember correctly. Isn't that the one that he uh, they, they did go in on him pretty good on the Saudi arms deal on that show?
1: Yes, he's, they had him squirming for yeah, sure. Squirming. They just they just couldn't drill down that extra layer, and it yeah. just too bad. But.
0: Tell us a little bit about the access to information, because the other pillar of the open source, you do the open source work, but then you do sort of the, like, real nuts and bolts filing of access to information, you know, what Americans would know as freedom of information, access to information in Canada. Talk a little bit about that part of your research and and how fruitful or frustrating that is.
1: Yeah, in terms of orders of magnitude, the frustration of dealing with journalists only pales in comparison to the frustration of dealing with access to information requests. But of course, journalists themselves deal with that. Also, it's been described as by Stephen Chase himself and reporters like Justin Ling. He actually did a, a good report on the, you know just the broken access information system that Canada has. And it's just it's laughable the disparity between your request and then what the request yields in terms of like the net number of sentences that are exposed versus those that are redacted or you know blacked out so you're getting pages uh,
0: back from them that are basically
1: black yeah. like yeah not even was, you'll you'll get blocks of pages that are just like pages 38 to 93 are exempted for uh, of, uh, via section 21-a you know of the access information act uh but at the same time I continue to do it like I've you know, set up a system years ago where it's just like whenever I Come across an inner, a high level interaction. And you gotta look for them, right? There's not always a press release. Probably like at least half of the time your source for finding out about a high level Canadian interaction in Saudi Arabia or the Emirates, Kuwait, is via the Arabic media. So like the local reporting of this, this official that's come to visit the, the Emir or the Sheikh. So I file access to information requests because, like, the media's not reporting on it. The Canadian government's not issuing a press release on it. This is your literally your only way sometimes to get any information on, on these kind of visits. And it's through those sorts of requests, you do actually get, you yield a lot of information. I mean, my whole research project for almost 20 years now has been, like, I want to learn more about how the Canadian state functions. Like, how does it go about... It's foreign policy, like for real, like on like if, you know taking into account the bureaucratic apparatus and everything that entails. And access to information requests are a way to get insight into that process that you can't otherwise get usually. So it is a frustrating process. It's a long, painstaking process. You got to have your your expectations level super low because, and your patience level is really high because like I mean I'm going on years without getting some of these requests. I mean, they'll, they'll just arbitrarily impose delays on access information requests that, like... Just hoping it goes up away. To... Yeah, I mean, I guess. Is
0: that what's going on? Is that what you're saying? Like, what's underpinning this? You're saying that the government is looking at your requests, vetting it, and being like, no, you're not getting that, even though the legislation indicates that they're supposed to.
1: I guess. I mean, they're not just doing it to me. They're doing it to everybody. To everybody. You know? um, but the other thing is, yeah, yeah like, I did hear from... A journalistic source in Ottawa that, "Like they heard from a uh, good authority that when this lab deal erupted controversially, what they did was they assigned like a single person to vet every single Saudi-related access and racial request. Right? So that just like puts uh, delays on the process and it, and it underscores a process. Right? Basically, like you get your know, your redaction marker. Right? And you're just, just going to end up redacting that much more." Because you think everything's sensitive. It's all sensitive commercial confidential information. And that's the term, the catchphrase they use to, to redact a whole lot of this is right. We can It's, you know, it's corporate secrecy or whatever. Because though, know, for example, I'll, I'll get like, okay, John Baird goes to Oman and I'll get the, the brief, try and get the briefing documents. And like what really brought the distinction between like what you see in an ATI request and what's behind those redactions was through getting access to the archival records, right? And being able to see the briefing documents without any redactions for whatever, a 30-year period or 25-year period of any meaning, right? Like the when Canadian high-level visits started in the, the mid-1970s up until the, the archival documents cut off in the mid-1990s, right? It's, it's amazing what's in those documents. And so in a certain sense, you can understand why in the in real time they would redact so much information. Because if and only if you had reportage that actually was doing like gritty, hard-hitting investigative work, and they were able to get unredacted briefing documents, I mean, you could see the, the scandals that could emerge. Because you can see
0: from the old documents that they aren't redacting how it works. You can see the like... Yeah.
1: Had that information been reported at the time, it could have been quite, you know, quite controversial or quite eye-opening, or just like just provides insight into the machinations, how the states operate, how the corporations operate, when you see what's in those documents without without the uh, redactions. I mean, it's kind of like my my access to those archives. It was like WikiLeaks, right? It's like I mean, it's like yeah. just seeing, even though it's, I mean, it doesn't have the political impact, it couldn't possibly, but for my purposes, it was fascinating and uh, to see these and to incorporate these into the, the dissertation. it's uh, It'll be interesting, like, juxtaposition even within the dissertation because, like, for the era covering the 1950s to the mid-1990s, it's all archivally based uh, and then from the period of the late 90s to current, it's all, like, just open source access to information requests <laughs> and there'll be a di- obvious disparity in terms of the details. But at the same time, uh, there's a whole new level of transparency via the social media. That's why I stay on that forsaken website, Twitter, because you know, <laughs> there's, there's so much good information on there in spite of like all the rotten, toxic stuff that one confronts there as well. All
0: right, Anthony, I want to thank you a lot for this discussion and uh, I wish you well in your uh, final stages
1: of your work and uh, we'll
0: hopefully have you back on the brief soon.
1: Thanks. Best of luck to the brief and i um, honored to have been one of your earlier guests. Anthony Fenton,
0: friend of the show. Thanks for having us.
2: I just wanted to ask how has Canadian media covered the crisis in Yemen, specifically the humanitarian cost. And it's, uh, Responsibility as a contracted arms supplier to Saudi.
0: Completely separate. Those yeah. are completely separate ideals. So the the coverage of the war in Yemen is virtually non-existent in Canadian press. Yeah. Canadian press has been whittled down to its barest bones. So you know, there's nothing like a. Yemen reporter <laughs> and anything right. like that right. in the Canadian press. Right? <laughs> like we actually have an Asia correspondent for the CBC. He's in charge of 3.9 billion people. <laughs> and he covers it from Bangkok, just does the best he can. but So, yeah, there's not yeah. a lot of in-depth coverage on this. And then the coverage of the LAV deal – is generally related to like what are the conditions of the deal how do we get out of the deal of course there's a lot of sympathy for the general dynamics employees in london ontario nobody wants them to lose their jobs and so really that's the main thrust of the debate that right. happens in the press right. it's not a debate about like should canada yeah, the ethics be of arm and arm <laughs> right. on this like like you, you could pay everyone at that
3: plant to not work, and the world would be so much better of a
0: place.
2: <laughs> or to than, turn, or you turn could pay their machines to do, yeah.
0: Make PPE for yeah. the crisis that yeah, we're all that's facing right, right yeah. now. Exactly. That's, that's, make some know, tests. That's a higher bar.
2: <laughs> Solar panels. Anything. Water purification systems.
3: them. I'm saying, pay them to stay home and do whatever they want. <laughs>
0: like anyway. So that's the point, right? the 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 debate isn't yeah. a debate on substance. It's a it's a debate on the distractions from what really is. If you want to stop the crimes that make the selling of the labs. problematic situation you just end the war because this is a one-sided war carried out by imperial powers we know all of their addresses (laughs) you know we have all of the we we have all the people in charge that need to be discussed if you want to end the war You end the war by demanding that Saudis stop bombing, that the U.S. stop underwriting, that Canada as a junior partner stops feeding them their most important armored vehicles that they're using to lose this war. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Don't get sucked into a thing about, oh, you know, the Saudis will never accept uh, someone other than al-Hadi, and they need to have influence in the north, and they don't want to, and so, you know, and the UAE wants to maintain strategic control. No, no. None of that, I mean, uh, you know, all of those concerns have all already been upended thanks to Ansar Allah's military victories. So it's not about what kind of settlement will be acceptable to all of these genocidal powers
0: that have been destroying and starving this country. It's about genocidal powers who incidentally need a peace deal, right? This <laughs> yeah, is the classic right, thing. Right. They need a <laughs> peace deal, or else this war's getting worse. Yeah. yeah. Or else their whole system could be unraveled. And as you said, and that is is tied intricately to the to the feasibility Of the Saudi fiefdom as a nation state in its entirety. Which was created in 1902 and
3: is probably being uncreated as we speak. There's (laughs) two other points that I wanted to make about Anthony's uh, intervention. One was just like the long suffering nature of anthony fenton and his uh, lonely work uh, filing endless <laughs> freedom of information requests then, with with little
2: trying, to no reward and then, yeah
3: and then trying to and then trying to get the canadian media who's publishing endless boring banal meaningless stories interested in this dynamite that he continuously yeah. unearths and just getting yeah. them and, and giving them their stories for complete free and then having them go, ah, eh, we're, 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 we're going to go in another direction.
0: <laughs> because what a story, right? We actually, like we don't even have the degrees of separation. Yeah. Usually we have like, Oh, Canada supports diplomatically this kind of, th- no, you have like Canadian drivers flying to Belgium to teach, Saudis how to drive tanks into the war in yemen It's a very, very good story that Anthony is repeatedly providing to the Canadian media. To very little avail. We, I will say, <laughs> when we are joking about just how grim the landscape is, he does mark he does. several pretty significant victories. He the rev, he, The he, full rev, review, that whatever that means, that the government underwent, they underwent basically, specifically because of Anthony. All right, guys. I guess wow. that's the show. Great show. There's a lot more to do on Yemen, and there will yeah. be more on Yemen on our show coming up. It is I mean worth pointing out I think here at the end of the show that the process of getting guests for an episode on Yemen is not insignificant. We had a number of guests, a guests who you would think would have academic insulation, a protection of some kind, essentially be told that after agreeing to the interview, being told that you know maybe you want to double maybe you want to think that through (laughs) (laughs) you know while you're locked with your family in quarantine Mm. which is again like mm, the stakes are high we're you know sometimes we joke around about some of the machinations of canadian policy but the situation is not a joke it's a dark
2: saudi is keeping an eye on them okay guys good
0: show coming up next justin are we going to go to brazil
3: Yeah, we're going to have to go to Brazil as part of our fascism study here. You know, we did Indian fascism, and Brazil is a front line of fascism right now. So, yeah, we're going to go there. We're going to have a great guest, and we'll present our findings. Stay tuned. Bye, guys.
2: That was The Brief with John Elmer, Justin Podor, and me, Nora Barrows-Friedman. The Brief is co-produced by Pierre Loisel, John Elmer, Justin Podor, and me, Nora Barrows-Friedman. Follow us on Twitter at The Brief Pod.